Welcome to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Specht. Hello. What's happening, buddy? Not much, man. Just uh, plugging away through winter. It's uh, watching the snow freeze, and then the snow melt, and then the snow freeze, and then the snow melt. <laughs> it's uh, been melting a lot lately. I know, and uh, and uh, I, I, if I wasn't so uh, so lazy, I would have been out to shovel my driveway because we didn't do a very good job of it last time, and now there's a lot of slush. I keep thinking, I should clear that before it refreezes. We had a ton of water because the way the plow did our snowbanks along the street, oh. there's that little channel that runs along the curb and lets any melted water go into the um, sewer. Storm drain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they blocked it all. So it all ah. just gathers at the end of the, the driveway into about a foot deep puddle. So and then I end up having to shovel water out of the way <laughs> before it turns into a slick foot thick piece of ice. Yeah. I almost always, uh, like that's one of the few things that I do. I'm pretty, uh, pretty uh, on top of that. Like there's two greats, two uh, uh, storm drains just right near my house and I always shovel them out just to make sure that if there is a big melt or whatever in the middle of winter it's not going to you know block up and stuff oh it would take me a week to shovel to the two grates near us <laughs> they've piled that much snow along oh wow yeah yeah I don't think our street is even two lanes a proper two lanes wide anymore <laughs> but oh well what are you going to do yep we are going winter camping next week for four days. Four yes, days, family day nights. weekend. Yeah, family yeah. day weekend here. Uh, we're going up to uh, going to go up to Mule Lake and uh, do some hot tenting and some yep. hiking, and we might actually get to use the snowshoes this time. <laughs> it might. Be, well, there's actually snow. That's yeah, great, eh? It might actually be above our our ankle. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. Getting out of the city for a bit, and just yeah. What would have been good is to to have been have been able to go up to Mew Lake or someplace similar right after that snowfall, because like now you're going to have like you're going to have set trails. There's going to be all packed down. A lot of people have, would have been gone through the areas and and uh, and packed it down. So it's it's you're not going it, to. It's I guess you get cross right through the middle of the airfield, but uh, it's always nice to be breaking trail. Been there, it's nice to be the first one to to break the trail and leave the first marks, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly what happened. I mean, we did that a couple of years ago when we were up there, and uh, we went out for the day hike and followed somebody's footprint, like all the footprints trampled down trail. And the next day, we threw the snowshoes on and hiked right through middle of area that wasn't touched yet. So oh, just yeah, yeah. just to use them. And there's uh, people that usually camp out into the airfield forest. Yes, yeah. So you need your snowshoes to get into spots through there. And exactly. So you follow that. Because they're the only ones that have gone through, so it's not fully packed down or anything. So you still need yeah, the snowshoes. Exactly. So. so we'll get yeah. some of that in. And like I say, we'll get some uh, some of the hikes in to see some of the trails and some of the scenery and whatnot. And all in all, just get out of the city, right? Exactly. Definitely yes. need that. Just mm-hmm. got to get away. Got to get away. Uh, waiting for, um, summer, spring, paddling, what is this, February already? February, March, April, May. Oh, here it goes. Well, when's uh, ice out? Ice out is, uh. Really May, right? April, May, depending on April, the year. April, yeah. Mid-April. Yeah. Into, sometimes late into, yeah. into May. So, mm-hmm. you know, three and a half, four months, give it. Yeah. Let's get close. Dun, 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 what exciting dun, is that? Dun, dun. Oh, Transitioning just, from hard water season to soft water season. You know what? There's so many people out there paddling still that don't have this issue that we do called freezing temperatures. <laughs> yeah. So they're still out paddling, and I just don't talk to those people during the winter. <laughs> Lose my phone number over the winter. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I, I just look at those pictures, and I'm just like, man, I'd love to be there. And honestly, the more I do this show, uh, yeah. the the more places that get brought to my attention. And you start looking at some of these places and just thinking like, like at this point, 
because uh, we next week is actually our six year anniversary of doing this yes. podcast. Um, after six years of seeing all these places and people saying, "Hey, check this out and check these pictures out from where I went this weekend and all that," I don't think I would have enough money ever to visit all those spots. Well, I think it's not just money. I don't think I would have enough lifetime left. Or like, yeah, or lifetime. Because, because there's so many places. Unless you retired and, and did it full time, it we'd be hard pressed to uh, manage to get to all the locations that we've discovered since doing this podcast. And so yeah. there's so many areas that it's like, oh man, I wish I had the time. There's so many places. Like there's another one. There's another one. I want to go there. So it's uh, yeah, so many locations around the world. But think of the challenge that would be. I know. I would gladly <laughs> accept the challenge. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. been some some really nice spots that uh, we've seen and whatnot over the years. So, like I say, you just start looking, and we go outside here, and we're driving to work, and the snow and the ice and the cold, and you see these pictures of people still paddling and kayaking and <laughs> yeah. canoeing, and oh yeah. look, we're stand up paddleboarding, and there go some dolphins. Yeah. Bite me. <laughs> do, you know, do you know how you can uh, tag yourself to whatever country you happen to be visiting? Yeah. So there's a, a buddy of mine from work. He, like you see his post and it, you can see this this big expanse. He said he tags himself in Dubai. Okay. And it's like, wow, that bugger, he's in Dubai. And it shows uh, footprints in what looks like sand. And you can see the lights of a city far off. And it's like, that's amazing. And then, <laughs> and people start picking at it. It's like somebody says, "Hey, that's the, is that is that really sand? This, what are those tracks? Is that skidoo tracks?" <laughs> and somebody says, "Hey, those footprints aren't aren't filling back in like sand tracks." He goes, "Yeah, I'm on Lake Simcoe." <laughs> <laughs> that's like the the pictures of people on the beach. They put, "Oh, look, I'm on the beach," and there's a picture of their legs sticking up. But then they zoom up and they're actually holding two wieners, like two hot dog wieners. <laughs> it makes yeah. it look like they're legs. <laughs> look, I'm buried in the sand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fooling you all the way. Yeah, it was funny. His post was really funny. <laughs> Where were you on the weekend? I went to Dubai. Yeah, right. You did. <laughs> if that helps you sleep at night, buddy. <laughs> um, one of the spaces I was looking at here, we talk about the monuments are big in, in the States. Uh, we've been talking about those before. The Missouri Breaks Monument in Montana, in Montana, Montana. I'm just, I'm yeah. just invite, inventing states now. The state of Montana. <laughs> Missouri Breaks Monument of Montana. Okay. I uh, came across that 375,000 acres of public land in central Montana, part oh, of the nation, huge. yeah, huge part of the nation's system of natural conservation lands administered by the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, these lands hold a spectacular array of plant life, wildlife, unique geological features, endless recreational opportunities, and significant historical and cultural values. So I was, I was looking at, at it in photos, and wow, stunning, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Uh, you paddle through a 149-mile Upper Missouri River. Uh, you're paddling, they say you're paddling through a journey through time. St uh, okay. You know what the Badlands look like in the North South Dakota? Yes. Yep. Picture that, but even more stunning. Sandstone yeah. hills along the banks hold a treasure trove of fossils going back to the Cretaceous period about 100 million years ago. Uh, like, you can, you can find fossils, like, easy. Yeah. Uh, there's a diatreme, rock from the Earth's mantle blown to the surface from 50 miles deep in the last volcanic period 50 million years ago. That recent, eh? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think I still have uh, stuff in my fridge from then. Uh, a little closer to our time, however, the wild and scenic Missouri also played a major role in the history of the West. Dozens of historic sites dot its banks, including Native American encampments, 
Lewis and Clark campsites, steamboat wow. landings, fur trading post sites, and abandoned homesteads. Uh, there is a, a most they say most people do a classic Missouri float trip, four days, three yep. nights. Uh, what is it here? Three night float through the White Cliffs section of the river, launching at Coal Banks Landing, spending nights at Eagle Creek, Hole in the Wall, and Slaughter River, and taking out at Judith Landing. It's supposed to be a really nice trip, uh, but and still four days, three nights. That's a yeah. That's not two shabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, one author wrote, the 149-mile-long Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument is such a place it teaches not only geology, but also part of the American history once called the Settling of the West, a time of heroism and enterprise as well as perfidy and cultural annihilation. And we had to mm. actually look up that word perfidy. I don't think <laughs> I'd ever heard it. Um <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, like deceitfulness. Yeah. So Gives you an idea of the history. Yeah. So there, there's quite, it sounds like there's quite a lot of historical stuff that you can see while you're there. 1805 from May 24th through June 13th, Lewis and Clark spent three weeks there exploring the oh, area. Yeah on their route west to determine whether the Missouri River was a water route to the Pacific. It was not, but it did prove to allow access deep interior of the west. Which, I mean, that's where everybody wanted to get going to afterwards, right? Yeah. If they couldn't get all the way west to the to the Pacific coast, at least it showed how much land was there and they could get out there. I'm going through uh, Google Images right now. I just uh, Googled Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, and uh, everything you said so far is showing up in the pictures. These old homesteads and you know barren lands and you know the uh, all the sandstone cliffs and it's uh, it shows river people kayaking. It's it's pretty cool. It's a beautiful area. Yeah, isn't it though? It's incredible. Uh, by the mid-1800s, the waterway was used as a major fur trade route uh, and other goods as well. Paddling through the area, you can stop at old homesteads, see what see what remains of those that lived there over 100 years ago. The winding channel gives you an idea of how difficult it must have been to navigate a steamboat 150 years ago. Uh, I can't imagine. That, that was something. Low water wasn't the only hazard back then, however. You will pass the Iron City Islands, named for a vessel that went aground July 1866. It was attacked by Lakota Sioux while the crew worked the boat off the shoal. Historical relevance of the area is huge in regards to Native Americans and European settlers and the tragedies that played out. So yeah, there's a lot of I mean all the all the old movies you hear about and the exploration and and all the things that went on in the West. It sounds like it all like a lot of it played out in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, wildlife: eagles, pelicans, beavers, otters, bighorn sheep, and more. Uh, there's a lot of uh, nature that you can see there. So. At the end of just looking at all this stuff, if you're looking to paddle an area that will give you the, you know, the, the scenic beauty and tranquility of a river landscape, if you have a penchant for geology, want to discover history going back to the 1800s, then Missouri Breaks Monument in Montana is a paddling destination that you should be checking out. That's only There's a few days drive of- from here. Yeah, that's it, eh? Yeah. Pick up John I'm Van Berger seeing- on the way. It snows there. It freezes there. I've seen snow pictures and ice pictures. And, yeah. And they have cactus. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I didn't think cactus would survive in that climate. Yeah, we saw them in uh, South Dakota as well. We came across one of yeah. the same sort of thing. It's like, wait a minute. These guys get, like, freezing snow and all that. Yeah. Like cactuses here. Yeah. Cacti. Cacti. Cactuses. <laughs> So, yeah, but, yeah, check out uh, the Missouri Breaks Monument in Montana. That's uh, definitely... pretty incredible. Isn't it, though? Oh, yeah. Huh. 
So, yeah, that's just another place we're going to have to throw the canoe on the roof of the truck, load it up. I know, right? Bite the bullet. Well, there's just... There's take no, one for the team. Time. Drive out Just there. not enough time. Never enough time. Never enough time. I know. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So, we talked about... Was it two episodes ago? The girl on the Renault in her car? Went through the ice. The, what? the girl. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I saw, I saw video and pictures of them uh, winching it out with a tow truck. Did they get it out? Yeah, they got it out. They they, they got it out within a week or so. The the concern was the uh, gas and oil would uh, start contaminating the area, so they uh, went in there as soon as they could, uh, chainsawed the ice open, and then uh, dragged the car. Just shore. dragged it out. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's uh, environmental issues right there. Yeah, exactly. You, you you don't need that oil and gas just going off of the river, right? Yeah. Well, the canal. Yeah. So they used a kayak to rescue the girl. Correct. New Zealand farmer Justin Morrison was checking stock around his farm as torrential rain slammed the area. Soon he discovered a herd of steer huddled on a small isolated patch of grass as their paddock became a raging torrent of water. So the headline was, Farmer Uses Kayak to Rescue Cows. (laughs) I'm thinking, I don't know how big his kayak is. (laughs) I would pay to see the money. Did you see the movie? <laughs> My first visual is like, you know, ever, you've seen pictures of seals on the bow of a yeah. kayak? There's a picture of the, the, the eyes of a cow looking in your face as the cow's draped across the bow of your kayak. Yeah, one at the front, one at the back, just to make sure it's even. Uh, <laughs> yeah. their, their only way out would be to cut a wire fence behind them, but first Morrison had to find a way over there. He went there was home. that much water. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he went home, got a kayak, returned to the paddock with the idea of paddling across and cutting the wire fence to let them get out onto some, some more land, a slightly bigger area than where they were. Uh, he had to kayak several hundred meters across the flooded paddock before reaching his cattle. <laughs> Torrential rains, floods, and there's this Not dude out there. <laughs> There's not too many people that can say that they herded they, they were herding cattle with a kayak. <laughs> so once so he got over there, got out, he cut the wire, led them up the bank on the far side of the river, uh, which I don't think it was supposed to be a river at the time, threw some brush uh, bush to a patch of grass where they could stay for the night before moving them to higher ground the next day. Uh, with the threat of more rain, Morrison said, the mob of animals are in a safe spot now and the severe damage is already done. There's probably not much more to lose. So just to oh. show you, the kayak is more than just a recreational tool. <laughs> exactly. It saves humans you, and cows alike. You can you can herd cattle with it. <laughs> now, I, I'm just picturing, uh, you know, how you, you know, like on a snow-covered street, somebody in a 4 by 4 tow you on your snowboard or tow you mm-hmm. on your canoe or whatever. Imagine you get out your lasso, you you rope up a steer or a cow, and, and the cow runs and, and pulls you through the water, and you surf uh, surf uh, behind a cow. Ooh. <laughs> that sounds like, a, Giddy up. sounds like a sport waiting to happen. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, cow kayak. It's like He's got to find event. an agreeable cow that will do it repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that'd be great. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> Imagine, I can see news at six. You can see a cow <laughs> running down a, a water-filled street, you know, water up to its belly, and there's a guy in a kayak being towed behind the cow. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> it's, it's a weird version of Santa Claus and reindeer. <laughs> hey, everybody's got their fun. <laughs> but you got to think, the other far hands are watching him Come back with a kayak. And you know they're thinking the same thing we are. Hey, guess what? (laughs) What's this? Here, hold my beer. (laughs) They're thinking, um, how are you planning on carrying a cow on that? (laughs) Exactly. Because that would be my first thought. 
Dude, you know the cow's not going to fit on that. Not even seeing anything else, because that's all I'm thinking is, yeah. hey. Hey, wait a second. This is brilliant. <laughs> I've got to do this. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh uh, where was that? That was in New Zealand. So heading north, some yeah. to India. See, we're all over the planet again this week. We've gone yes. from Montana to New Zealand. Now we're up into India. So people make rafts with many objects, bamboo, wood, pipes, plantain stems, and so on. But in India, a man named Asokan has a raft that is unique and good for the environment. The plastic water bottles left behind by the visitors in the Atharapali yeah. Falls. I wasn't even going to try and say that. You know what? There's so many words in this week's, like, I'm just going to slaughter them all. Atharapali Falls, where the resources for Asokin to build his raft, he collected hundreds of these plastic bottles to make a, a raft to paddle. Uh, he wanted to make a raft for fishing and to bring grass to his cattle, but he found the bamboo or pipe rafts too expensive. Later, he found the solution to build the raft with plastic bottles, which are thrown away by visitors near the falls. At first, he made a small raft on an experimental basis because, you know, you know, you make the big one first. Yeah. <laughs> it's not working. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so he made this small one and then he made the bigger one, which he uses now. The raft was made using 160 one-liter bottles. That's a lot. That's a lot of bottles. That's a lot of, uh, well, it's a lot of air pockets. Yeah. Four feet wide, 10 feet long. Wow. The bottles are placed You could in carry a cow on that. He, he probably could. Maybe. I wonder if he knows uh, <laughs> Justin Morrison down in New Zealand. Uh, the bottles are placed in four rows, 40 bottles in each row and tied together with ropes. Long spl splinters of Arisa palm. Is Arisa? Arika? Arisa palm. I think so. Arika. Are also fixed for support. He said that the bottle raft is easy to handle as it is lightweight. Took two days for him to build the raft and only cost 50 rupees for rope and that's all that was spent on the entire production so yeah. we googled how much 50 rupees cost now <laughs> here we are spending a couple thousand dollars on a canoe how much is 50 rupees <laughs> surprisingly like uh, i don't know like it's sometimes you kind of it's hard to appreciate the value of money in other countries and when you compare it to your own but yeah like 85 was, cents. Yeah, 85 <laughs> cents. And I'm thinking all the rope that he used to tie this raft together cost 85 cents. It cost me $1.60 for a liter of gas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you start collecting used water bottles and get yeah. 85 cents worth of rope, you too could have yourself a raft. I wonder if you too. could... I'm I'm picturing my head building. So do you know how you can bubble wrap? You know, people say they're all oh, the bubble wrap parents. They bubble wrap their kids so they get injured. No, I'm just visualizing wrapping a cow in empty bottles so that the cow can float in a flooded paddock. <laughs> mm, that'd have to be really deep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he's using this raft that he made for fishing and bringing grass to his cattle. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Cost him a whole 85 cents and two days of time. Yeah. And he'll probably very use it for ages. Now, it's wow. interesting. I'm wondering how how this became a news story. I don't know. Well, one person's trash, another man's treasure, and it's yeah. environmentally friendly. So, oh, speaking <laughs> of the environment, not really paddle related, but this is a good thing. Because well, it's it's outdoors camping it's related. Outdoors related, yeah. Because when we're all camping, what do you like? To, you like to see butterflies along the riverbank and stuff exactly. like that, right? Yeah. So the monarch butterflies, every year, I know they make their way from from Canada, North America, down through Central America, and there is apparently one grove where the billions and billions of them uh, migrate to Congregate. every year. 
Yeah. It used exactly. to be like millions of these monarch butterflies. Yes. I know there's been some big frosts, uh, snow. I don't even know how many years ago that was down there. Yeah. It was within the last decade. Yeah. It was, was, was a... killing them off. Yes. So each fall, the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation counts the Western monarch butterflies as they migrate throughout California. For many years now, each fall, the count declines further and further. Native plant nurseries along the West Coast have turned to pushing milkweed among household gardeners. We've even had that up here is plant butterfly gardens. I think David Suzuki, I believe, is a big pusher of that. Um, planting the the gardens for for the birds and the butterflies and the bugs and stuff like that, because that's sort of the basis of the food chain, right? Yeah. And so they've been pushing that, and the milkweed is the monarch's favorite plant, so it gives them more places for refuge on their journey. But the data has generally generally been stark. Habitat loss and pollution have decimated the monarch population. One of the most well-known, if not most, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known, of butterflies facing sure extinction, is the monarch butterfly, which I didn't realize it was facing extinction. I know times were yes, bad, but close. I didn't. Yeah. So, in 2020, the count recorded less than 2,000 monarchs. That's incredibly low. 2,000. Yeah. That's like brutal. Yes. Um, this year's count was released. In 2021, the fall tally counted a mind-blowing 247,237 monarchs, 100 times more than, the, than seen last year. Yes. So now... Think of that number. So they were able to rebound from uh, an estimated count of 2,000 to approximately a quarter million. And uh, so that was that's a huge rebound. That's but huge. That's a huge rebound. But they're still only at about 5% of their 1980s population or, you know, yeah. the, the quantity. So they are still, like, at, at a quarter million, they're reduced by 95%. So it's uh, it is still incredible to think about how much fewer there are right now, and uh, and well, there, there's there's various reasons that uh, that they are rebounding. Like we're doing better, the weather is not as harmful. People are using fewer pesticides and so on. I think the pesticide thing is more that we're doing it to avoid harming the bees, but mm-hmm. the uh, the butterflies are are benefiting from this uh, new open knowledge of uh, of what pesticides can do to our environment and the bees and so on, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and, you know, increase in the pollinator plants, again, is yes. is a big thing yeah. as well, right? Yeah, uh, we've lost 95% of their population since 1980. That's huge. That's crazy. Huge. Yeah, that's crazy. But like you say, in a year, if they can go from under 2,000 to almost 250,000. Exactly. That's big time. So that you can, you can still see you can see them rebounding very quickly if if uh, if you know the conditions are favorable. You know we don't use too many pesticides. The mm-hmm. weather is favorable and so on, right? Yeah. So they go on. They they end this big article saying, uh, now more than ever we have the opportunity to double down on our conservation efforts. Acting quickly to harness the momentum of this upswing is our best chance at preventing Western monarchs and other at-risk butterflies from being lost forever. I didn't realize, because I love, I mean, who doesn't? When you're on a canoe trip or something, you're out paddling for the day, whether you're stand-up paddleboarding, kayaking, whatever, down a local river, uh, backcountry, and you're seeing the butterflies and the dragonflies and that you, you love seeing that sort of nature, right? Yes. And yeah, seeing the, the monarchs and the blue admirals and, and all the other butterflies that are out there. That's, that's a cool thing to see, especially when you have little kids, little kids just go nuts for that. But I had no clue. The monarchs were that endangered. 
I know, yeah. So I, I had no idea that the population was that small. I knew that they were in serious in serious danger, but uh, I didn't realize that they were that, that much reduced. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, well, I guess we need to be getting some more milkweed out there. There's a... I was I, I I'm looking for it now, but I can't find it. But uh, so a typically a single monarch does not fly from you know uh, from through North America. So like from Ontario all the way down to the breeding grounds in Mexico, a single monarch doesn't make that whole trip. It's I think I, I and I can't find it, but uh, it, it uh, takes like five generations. Does it? So. Something like that. That's what it is. It's it's not like it's not like they do it in a. They can only do about twenty or thirty kilometers a day, right? I don't know. I've never actually tracked one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought they. I thought they like went way up in the Gulf Stream or whatever that's called up in the air there, and they just sort of maybe boogied and just it carried them all the way to uh, South America. I just I know where they start. I know where they end up. I didn't know how long it takes. I just sort of you know. Know half the half the migration stuff. It's like I know birds <laughs> leave here and they end up down there. I don't know exactly how long it takes. <laughs> I just know where they end up. They don't send me a postcard along the route. They don't call me. They never call. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty uh, pretty neat. Um, well, let's take a quick break here because we still got a few things to talk about. Uh, and one of them is uh, about us talking lately about, uh, I'm getting old, I'm getting old. I'll tell you about getting old, buddy. So let's take a quick break here, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, we'll go through some more hard things. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Dark Sprest. You're listening to Paddling Adventures Radio. If you like what you've been hearing, you can find out more by checking us out at paddlingadventuresradio.com as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes, Google Play, and the episode page for our website, where all our podcasts are available for download or streaming. We love to hear from our listeners, so if you have a suggestion for the show or want to let us know how we're doing, please drop us a line. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. This portion of the show is brought to you by Algonquin Outfitters. Algonquin Outfitters, providing quality Algonquin Park backcountry adventures for the entire family since 1961. Whether you want to get on the water for a day or a week, the friendly staff at Algonquin Outfitters can help you out. Find them online at algonquinoutfitters.com or visit one of their 12 locations. Algonquin Outfitters, your outdoor adventure store, with locations in Algonquin Park, Muskoka, and Halliburton. Welcome back. So we did a little research over the break there because, you know, this is, we get questions. <laughs> there are questions. So Derek, what did you find <laughs> out about the monarch butterflies? Well, it's interesting. So I was thinking that, uh, and, and so we clarified some of these facts, but uh, just before the break, I was stating that it takes about five generations for a butterfly to fly from like Canada to Mexico. So I was mostly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly wrong. I thought they went one far, one straight go. I was yes. mostly right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, so they, they go down in one generation, in yes. one go, and they winter. Yes. Then what? And, and so, so that generation, that would be Gen 4. And so they're the ones that end up going south. They overwinter in Mexico. And then in the spring, they start heading north again. And then in, this, in the southern states, in the, uh, in the spring and early summer, they, their larvae go from caterpillars into new monarchs. And, uh, and then that gen, that, that would be gen one, they fly from the southern states all the way up to Canada. And then they have their babies in Canada. And then gen three heads south uh, or starts to head south and then that generation's babies become gen four which flies most of the way south over winters hibernates over winter and then creates the new gen one in spring which again starts head north right so gen one heads north from the southern states 
Gen yes. two and three are born up here. Gen four is born up here. And they're the ones that live the longest. Because you were sitting there saying, well, they only live like a few weeks. And I'm like, well, they can't if they're going. Because, you know, they, it says it takes a couple months to get down there. Yeah. Well, and that's what happened. The fourth generation, the last generation, will live, live eight to nine months. Where yeah. Gen 1, 2, and 3 only live two to three two weeks. To two, weeks. Or two to six weeks. Two to six weeks, yeah. Two to six weeks, yeah. Yeah. How weird. I want to be a Gen 4. <laughs> now, that went from, I wonder how they make their way to the same forest every year. <laughs> yeah. You had to ask that question. Yeah. And I, my thinking is they use the same sort of technique as uh, the birds and stuff like that with the magnetic lines. And yeah, the magnetic lens flux. Yeah. And then something in your brain says, well, what happens if north and south... Swap. Swap, because it's, it happens it every... Happens. What'd you Two say? Two to 300,000 years, but it hasn't happened for 780,000... No, two to 300,000 years. Is it how swaps. often it sli- switches. And the last time it swapped was 780,000 years ago, almost a million years ago. And so it routinely swaps. Yeah. And so for during the swap, the swap takes about 1,000 years... And during that period, the, your, your North and South Pole are just all, all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. We could end up with the uh, North Pole in, in Alberta or in Russia or something, right? So it's just, and then suddenly a swap becomes stable for another two to 300,000 years and then swaps. So with this, I was wondering how that messes up like turtles and whales and butterflies and Canada geese and, and stuff like that. But you know what? Two to, 300, well, 780,000 years ago, the last uh, recorded swap, which they can see in ancient trees, petrified trees, and uh, in uh, solidified lava, molten lava, that formed with the North Pole, wherever it happens to be. So they they know how long it's been. So I'm just wondering, you know, like, how long now? I have more questions. I have more questions. <laughs> I got questions. <laughs> so the biggest so question being, <laughs> if yeah. North Pole is now South Pole, does East become West or is West still West? I think that switches too. Why would it switch? It's only top and bottom that switch, not side to side. So are you saying Alberta is now in the East? Just because the North Pole is still is now technically the South Pole. Well, if you, you know, I learned this in electrical class. So, are you drinking beer right now? No. Do you have a pen? I got a pen. Grab your pen. Put the thumb up like you're saying, "Hey, I'm the Fonz." Grab the pen in your four fingers. So your fingers are indicating eastward direction. Right? Yeah. And so if you, if the swaps, your thumb is north, now go thumbs down, your fingers are now pointing in a westward direction. My fingers are still in the same direction. No, they're not. They are. Right now, with a thumb up, like the fawns, your fingers are going from right to left around the pen. And now you flip it around. If I hold the pen in front of me with my thumb up. My fingertips yeah. are pointing at me. Yeah. If I turn my thumb down, my fingertips are still pointing at me. Yeah, but in the opposite direction. <laughs> Not the tips. You got to look at where the fingers are going. <laughs> if, I, if I point my fingers straight out, I drop the pen. <laughs> <laughs> I say west is still west, east is still east. No, it swaps. So <laughs> we're going to have a tag team match later. <laughs> Anybody that wants to participate <laughs> and fight. <laughs> so technically, if you, I guess you could say that, you know, if you're looking at the planet, the north is down at the bottom, but east is still going to be east, west is still going to be west. But if you think about the magnetic lines of flux with the, the magnetic, the poles are going to swap. And so I, I think a compass would... Uh, I'm... I'm hoping we're 
long dead when this happens. <laughs> we, we need to talk to Neil deGrasse Tyson with this. We yeah, let's get him on. Ourselves. Let's get him on. We got. Some I'm sure we're. We got I'm questions. sure we're going to get lots of response. There's going to be lots of responses from people smarter than us who are listening. Going, nobody is smarter than idiots. us. <laughs> Don't give them credit. <laughs> Alan's going to weigh in on this one. <laughs> Alan, I don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it, Alan. We don't care. Uh, alrighty. Speaking of Alan, actually, uh, he sent us this little little clip. World Rafting Championships have been rescheduled for May 28th to June 3rd this year. Uh, Banja Luka, Bosnia will take place on the Verbos and Terra Rivers. And Team Canada is going. So back in 2019, a bunch of teams got together and uh, a team from Owl Rafting for women won the right in 2019. The championships were on the Ottawa River. So the Canadian National Women's Rafting Team. Uh, so they are going to the world championships team members, Aaron Weber, Maris Fraser, Ali Priest, and Kaylee Marlin are current or former guides at owl rafting, Oh yeah, which is only like four hour drive from here. I was, I went one rafting of the best with river, them when uh, I was water like a running, teenager. One of the best raft, uh, river rafting in, in like Canada. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, kayaks and everything are out that way, practice and and stuff. Yep. Uh, open men and women's events, masters, which are 40 and up, uh, men and women, under 23 men and women, only under 19 men groups. Huh. I don't know why there is an under 19 women's group. Well, chances are they don't have enough participants at that age group to uh, to make up enough teams for a competition. Maybe. Because it's not like they're purpose- they would purposely exclude them. Chances are, if they have men's and women's groups and the other open masters under twenty three and under nineteen, so under nineteen, possibly they just don't have enough uh, teams that can compete at that level. But see, then then you you sign up, even if you're the only women's under nineteen team, you automatically <laughs> you win, win gold, silver, and bronze. <laughs> It's a winner, winner, only, chicken dinner event. The, so this year, the only team won gold, silver, and, and bronze. Metal. That's never happened before. They were unchallenged for gold. Yeah. Uh, they're all four uh, four member teams that are that are in this. So good luck to Team Canada. We got to say that. Yeah, you know, let's say they're just just down the road. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that, but uh, yeah, May to May twenty eighth to June third in Bosnia, Bosnia yeah. yeah, cool. Uh, but yeah, it took from uh, the two thousand nineteen when it was till till now. So that just shows Actually you again, have a world. Are, yeah, yeah, things things are uh, starting to, to open up a bit. Yeah. Um, this one I came across. Hope for people with paralysis. This one was cool. I found this one very This one's really cool going with the old uh, science-y twist to it. So for decades, yeah. doctors, researchers, they've dabbled with using electric stimulation of the spinal cord to help restore movement in people with paralysis. Because, I mean, the whole nervous system is just electrical impulses and if you want to get off. I, I, went, I started reading a lot of the stuff they were talking about in this article and I'm just like, um, yeah, whatever. Okay, um, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Just getting the basics of it. Yeah. Technique when combined with physical therapy has even allowed some patients with complete paralysis to walk again. So there is a basis oh. for, for experimentation. Yeah. Uh, I guess if, I don't know whether that's the correct word to use or not, but, but it has not worked for all paralyzed people. Now a team of researchers has designed a new type of electrode system that successfully restored movement abilities in three patients with complete paralysis of muscles in the legs and trunk. Uh, What is more, improvement was seen within just one day of treatment, faster than previously studied techniques, and it continued in the days and months that followed. Yeah. That's... That's incredible. I mean, you got to think there's, there's people that are, that 
totally paralyzed. And now there's a little glimmer of hope that, oh, well, maybe there's some, because I mean, it, you got to think after all the years and the robotics and everything else that's available, you got to, yeah. you got to be coming up with something. Yes, exactly. Right. While the treatment huh. effects of the, of this device that they've made are, um, are immediate at first, the patients did require additional body weight support, which consisted of either two parallel bars on the ground or on a treadmill. Uh, and after one to three more days, however, they were actually able to walk again using a support aid. And then after a few months, they improved at performing other motor activities, including cycling, canoeing, and even standing up and having a drink at the bar. And that made the list. Yeah. So not only can you scope, not only you can get that on must a have been the new fee of the canoe, group. You can stand at a bar and have a beer. But from from people, I mean, this is this is awesome news for you know it people is. that have have suffered accidents and in their sporting events, and you know you yeah. hear about that such and such had a had a horrendous bike accident and won't walk again. Yeah. So this gives and, you know. And I think one of the biggest things that, uh, so if you can get the signals to transfer and get yourself to operate those muscles again and move those joints and, and so on, the, I, the problem would be the long term prior to treatment would be the, the atrophying of the muscles, right? Yeah. And so I guess that's why you need that extra support aids because the muscles just don't have the strength anymore. And so they would atrophy. So, so it sounds like after a few months of doing this, the muscles are building back up and gaining strength. Oh, you got to think there's a lot of physiotherapy that goes into all that. Oh, got to be a ton, but you know what? To actually be mobile again. And, uh, so I think it's incredible that people are, Actually, getting on bicycles and getting out and paddling a canoe, and well, it's only been three patients so far that they've tried this yeah. on, and it, and it's they've had these types of results. Because I mean, you know, you're sitting there, and if you were huge into into the outdoors, mm-hmm. just just the thought of being able to that you might get out there again one day is is huge. Yeah, uh, there is a caveat though. Long-term improvements occurred only while the patients had their stimulation device switched on. People with complete paralysis will need a permanent spinal implant for the treatment to work. I honestly don't think they will care if there's got to be some sort of implant. Yeah. Well, if your option was laying in a bed, paralyzed, or having some sort of little implant that mo- that gives the, the stimulation so you can get out, walk, wa- uh, socialize, canoe, drive a car. Which would you take? Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of them? <laughs> <laughs> you would take the little device <laughs> that's switched on all the time as opposed yeah. to, yeah. So that's, uh, that's definitely pretty cool to have that kind of progress on the on the horizon, right? I saw a documentary or something before. I think it was it, it was very similar to this uh, about restoring the ability to move and stuff. I think it was called like RoboCop or something. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this goes quite that far. But I oh, mean, it'd be nice though. You know, like if you're sitting there, and I mean, if I if I knew that I could go out canoeing again. I jump, I know, at, right? jump yeah. at that chance. Absolutely jump yeah. at it. Literally, eh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we talked, we've made comments about, uh, I'm getting old. <laughs> oh, yeah. So let's check this one out, shall we, Derek? <laughs> There's a group okay. of retired women ah. that say they are very excited to be taking part in the Canoe World Championships team is being coached by canoeist John Court, who is 79 years of age, who represented Great Britain at the 1972 Munich Olympics. The women, all former public sector workers, trained three mornings a week on Trentham Lake in Staffordshire. 
He says he spotted an opportunity for local people to take part in the very highest level when the event was announced in the UK. Uh, he says event like this normally takes place in Hawaii, Tahiti, and New Zealand, but it's coming to Dorney Lake. Uh, he says, oh. yeah, championships will be held on a former London 2012 Olympic course near Windsor in August, and the women are competing in the club category. Still, world championships for canoeing. I know. Right? Uh, and you got to think, yet, it seems. they're all retired. Yeah. I mean, here at 63, I got to think it's about the same over in Britain. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Uh, we asked around and got six volunteers with great potential. Ladies who were heading into retirement and a quiet life, all of a sudden there is an opportunity to take part in the world championships. Heather Jones. was that? That's amazing. It is. To have that opportunity. Yeah. Heather Jones said the coronavirus pandemic had delayed some of their training, but the team was now really looking forward to the event. It's great fun and is beautiful, especially first thing in the morning, she said. So they're out there looking towards this event, like this is going to be cool to do this, but they're getting out three days, three mornings a week and they're enjoying their time out on the water as well. <laughs> it's it's more than just training. Good for them. That's incredible. Her teammate uh, is a retired nurse and said, we've never had an opportunity before like this to represent the country. So we are all very excited about it really. And very proud. It's great for fitness. You're out on the water. You've got the birds and you're coming out in all weathers, rain, shine, frost, snow, everything. It's fabulous. (laughs) So rather than just go into retirement quietly. Yeah. Sleep in a hammock all day. So you remember, Derek, the next time you say, oh, I'm feeling old. <laughs> now you've got a bar. There is a bar that has been set. There's a bar. Yeah, it's been set. The bar has been set, <laughs> mister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, uh, just thinking of how I'm aging and so on. Now think about uh, thinking about training to compete at the world level at our age or older, right? So cake. you're talking... Your, the recovery time is so much longer, right? So it's probably why they only train three days a week because you, they couldn't probably couldn't handle seven days a week, like uh, you know a twenty-year-old going to the Olympics type thing, right? Oh, they've got things to do. They got bingo. <laughs> they got the senior center to attend. Exactly. They got shopping. They got yeah. snoozes. <laughs> they got to go home and nag the husbands. They got there other go. stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible it's such an opportunity yeah now yeah. it's it seems like if it wasn't there they wouldn't have been participating no but i guess to get funding and to to say if it was being held in hawaii or wherever it's normally held like the, you'd have to you'd have to raise funds to be able to manage to do that because you're talking equipment gear flight travel and uh, accommodations and and all that kind of stuff. So it's an expensive venture, oh, which yeah. is why, you know, young people when they when they're competing on a world stage between Olympics, they're sponsored and so on, right? So they're you know like they're Red Bull sponsored or whatever to help pay for their travel and and uh, but th- at this point, it's uh, I doubt I doubt Red Bull is going to be getting involved much. Uh, you know, sponsoring a sixty-five-year-old woman who wants to compete on the world stage for uh, for this type of thing, right? Well, so especially that's, that's, someone that doesn't have any experience. Yes, exactly. So th- I think this is why they are getting this opportunity because it's a local competition. It's a world competition, but it's local to them. Yeah. So it's it, it, the expenses are ninety-five percent of what it would cost somebody else to fly in and compete at these things, right? Well, that's exactly. I mean, they're probably just staying at home or something, <laughs> local exactly. hotel yeah. sort of thing, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. no, that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool um, that yeah, they get the amazing. opportunity to do that. I know. Huh. Again, I, I'd jump at the chance if I was that age and looking for something oh, to do when it was in town. Yeah. You yeah. know, that'd be awesome. Pretty incredible. Good for them. Uh, second last thing I got here. Fong Na K Bang National Park was recognized by UNESCO 
as a global heritage site in 2003. Oh, well, there you go. It has one of the world's country? longest caves. It's in Vietnam. Okay. Uh, at 7,729 meters, Phong Nga is among the world's longest caves. Contains 14 grottos as well as a 14 kilometer long underground river. Which, what did we say? That was eight and a half miles? Yeah, 8.6 miles or something like that. Yeah. So, it's so it's saying the cave is 7.7. So I'm going to convert to kilometers. So it's 7.7 uh, kilometers yep. is the cave, but 13.9 kilometers for the river? Yeah. I guess windy, right? Windy underground? I'm guessing. I don't know. I'm just giving you what they told me. I haven't been there yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet. Uh, it opened for tourism activities in 1990. And since early January, the Tourism Center has launched a night kayaking tour exploring the cave and enjoying local cuisine. I mean, I'd just be there for the kayaking and the food. So, yes, good. exactly. It's got me covered. Yeah. Uh, they say it's. This new product is expected to boost the local tourism industry over two years of being furloughed by the COVID-19 pandemic. So before entering the cave, visitors are equipped with life jackets, helmets. They're asked to follow tour guides instructions to ensure safety and conservation of the cave. Uh, but visitors can kayak on their own to explore the cave. Uh, and again, if you if you go and you Google the um, Fong Na K-Bang National Park, you'll cave, you'll you'll see pictures of it. And there's some pretty remarkable stuff in there. So the first part of the tour allows tourists to visit the cave, famous for its rock formations that have been given names like the lion, unicorn, kneeling elephant, and the Buddha. Uh, a lot of stalagmite, stalactites, and, and mineral f- formations in there. Um... One tourist said she has visited the cave many times, but this is the first time she has kayaked inside at night. Uh, like I said, they, they, cool. well, they got the the headlamps and all that too, right? Yep. Yeah. But I'm wondering if during the day, is does enough light get in there? Or are you still going to need the headlamp? Well, that, with that many kilometers long, with that distance, I doubt. I think it's. I think it's uh, basically. Nighttime, no matter what time of day you're there, because it's just going to be dark. You're going to have to, even daytime, you're going to need headlamps. It's just dark in there. But I think what what it is, is it, yeah, it provides the opportunity, like for them, because of the COVID shutdowns, they're like, okay, well, we can only have so many people, so we'll run day and night tours. Oh, I wonder if that's why they're doing it. That makes sense. I think so. If I was to guess, because you can only have so many people in there before you just pack it. And so now it's like, well, we can't just like, well, for example, you know, the, uh, the lift bridge in Peterborough, when you'd gather a thousand kayaks in there to, to go lift up and down with COVID restrictions, you could, wouldn't be allowed to have that many people in there. Mm-hmm. Right. I wonder if that's so why they're pushing here. nighttime. Exactly. They're trying yeah. to open up a, another revenue stream there because of the, they've been limited by, uh, by uh, physical distancing. And so it's like, well, we'll uh, we can double capacity by doing it at night, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this girl goes on to say, kayaking by myself gives me the freedom to observe firsthand at my own pace the stalactites and mysterious crannies of the cave. That makes for a very interesting tour. Around yeah. 1.2 kilometers along the river inside the cave, visitors can see a large ancient jar believed to originate from the time of the Cham Cham civilization. The jar covered with mud is stuck in the hollows of the cave wall. When I saw that picture, you know, the big jars, the big clay jars they had in like Europe and or, uh, Egypt and Greece. You yeah, see like them. Wine they, yeah. Jars. The wine, yeah. the oils and all that sort of stuff. Honey. That's, what, that's what it looks like. One of those hmm. jar was discovered Early 2013 has a height of 65 centimeters, uh, and according to the museum, there is nothing inside the jar which has a ceramic coating on the outside. 
That's pretty cool. Going past the ancient jar, visitors can anchor their kayaks on a sandy beach and explore the grotto. The grotto has large stalactite columns connected to the ceiling to the cave floor. This is the first time the grotto has been open to tourists. What? Oh, okay. yeah. that's cool. Uh, so, yeah, so they're adding stuff onto it, right? Yep. So inside the grotto, there are 97 ancient Cham characters whose time and meaning are yet to be deciphered. Like, as in alphabet, like letters on yeah. the wall, carvings? Uh, written oh. symbols. Yeah. These inscriptions were discovered by the French 120 years ago. Some studies indicate that these characters were inscribed more than a thousand years ago. The writing is still sharp and has not faded or tarnished. Wow. Mm-hmm. Huh. Uh, Fong Na has been voted by international experts as one of the most wonderful caves in the world for a number of reasons. Longest underground river, most beautiful underground lake, highest and widest entrance, picturesque widest dry cave, sandbank and reef, spectacular stalactites and stalagmites, and long water grottos. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. After the tour ends, on the white sands in front of the cave, visitors can enjoy barbecued local specialties, including chicken, shrimp, grilled pork, boiled corn, and rice dumpling cakes. What? No barbecued bat? No bat, no scorpions, no grasshoppers on a <laughs> stick. None of those things. Have you ever watched those Asian street food things? I think it's I on have, Netflix. yeah. It's They're interesting, but uh, less than appetizing. Head of snake or something? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know what? For them, that's <laughs> local cuisine over there. So I know if, yeah, it's normal. if I was it's, over there, I'd probably it's... try some of it. You'd have um, to. You'd have to. I, I don't know that I'd go for the scorpion and stuff like that. But yeah, some of it would, uh, I'd, I'd definitely try. So yeah, there's another thing to add to our, our list of places we'd like to go, but Unless we're that one really of rich. all the stuff that we've discussed, I think this one really sounds the most uh, realistic and possible for me to take my family to. This, uh, so it's economical. It's it's uh, it's not that expensive to be in country for like Vietnam and places like that. Mm-hmm. Flying there would be expensive, but to, just to be able to paddle this this cave system. Yeah. That just sounds amazing. And you could, you could spend a week trying to do, it's not like you could just go there one day or one night and see it all. It's like, you'd have to go there and spend like three or four days, you know, investigating. Plus, you know, you see in other local sites and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Get the, huh. the tourism going. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, um, I'm signing up. Are you signing up for that? Well, you go to that <laughs> one and I'm going to head out to the Missouri breaks monuments in Montana. Perfect. <laughs> and then we'll compare notes when we get back. We will. I'll tell you about this, the uh, barbecued scorpion. <laughs> and I'll tell you about how our divorces <laughs> are going because we didn't tell our wives we're going. <laughs> Oops. Uh, only other thing I got is just to recap the upcoming events that are, are happening. Oh, soon. yes. Yes. Starting in upcoming uh, events. March. Quiet Adventure Symposium, virtual only, March 1st, 2022. Access to 20 plus online presentations. And I believe John Van Berger is doing a um, virtual presentation on his Erie Canal trip. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Quiet. There's, there's quite a few people we know that are going to be uh, doing the Quiet Adventure Symposium. Yep. yep. Uh, go to quietwatersociety.org to find out more information. Uh, and again, it's only virtual this year. Yes, it's, it was the safest decision that they could make. And uh, and maybe, with fingers crossed, we uh, will be able to participate physically next year. Yeah. Canucopia, Madison, Wisconsin, in person and virtual. So they're doing both this year. Wow. March 11th to 13th, go to rutabaga.com backslash canucopia for more information on tickets and times and locations and all that sort of stuff. And the Toronto Outdoor Adventure Show is right now, it's, they're saying it's in person, April 29th to May 1st. 
Uh, we'll still have to check that one. I'm still on the fence about that one just because it's close to home. Yeah, and you know what? What they're saying now is, uh, so the province is starting to have a more relaxed view of, uh, it's like, well, there's enough people with Omicron out there and and uh, they're just going to have to deal with it and uh, going forward. And so it's it's not as, you know, it, it looks like they're going to a phased approach to returning things somewhat back to normal. I wonder if I can find a used like NASA spacesuit and just show <laughs> up in around. that, just wander around in that. <laughs> I got a whole bunch of like advertising for the side of it. Just, just wander around the head. show. Just random stickers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, go and throw one of your stickers on the space guy. That'd be awesome, eh? Everybody would know who it was. Uh, Toronto Outdoor Adventure Show in person, April 29th, May 1st. Uh, OutdoorAdventureShow.ca and uh, check out all the information uh, there. So, yeah, those uh, shows are coming up starting in March. It's less than a month Beauty. away. Other than that, that's all I've got. Yes, I don't have anything extra. Uh, we are, like I say, our big, big show next week. Well, big show. Uh, just a big well, date next week. Six years yes. to the day. On mm-hmm. February 17th, Thursday, February 17th this year, which is next Thursday, will be exactly six years from when our very first episode on February 17th, 2000 and what was that? 16 came mm-hmm. out. We launched our very first show six years ago next Thursday. Imagine, eh? Yeah. Wow. Woohoo! Can't Doesn't believe I pulled like up with your long. crap for that long. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's what my wife says. <laughs> that's been a lot of beers. We should have saved all the cans. <laughs> We'd be raking in the bucks now. Raking. Why are you guys collecting cans? Oh, no reason. They all mean something special. Yeah, <laughs> you etch the, uh, the, the episode, episode date on the yeah. side of the can. Oh, remember that beer from episode eighty nine? Oh, that was yes. a good episode. And that beer yes. was good. That good. German gluten alcohol free beer, kosher beer, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a bad episode. Bad. <laughs> All righty. Well, if you've got nothing and I've got nothing, uh, if you want to find out more about us, you can find us at paddlingadventuresradio.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can download or stream episodes on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, Player FM, iHeartRadio, and all your favorite podcast downloading sites. You can go to the episodes page at paddlingadventuresradio.com and listen to all our episodes there. You can download them or stream them. Uh, on that note, I have gotten a couple of people sent me messages because this is the time of year we re- it renews our uh, our dot com uh it, it, oh yes we got to renew it yep. every year and yep. i guess the ssl license has been acting up for a few people uh so a couple of people have oh. had that that uh, issue uh if you are having that issue please switch over to spotify or iHeartRadio till we can make sure nobody else is having that issue and we get it all sorted out um don't know what the dealio is i'm not that i'm not that uh Technically inclined. Tech savvy. So, yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, however, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your friends, family, and fellow paddlers. I want to thank everybody for listening this week. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you next time. <laughs>